You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. That is our vision, that is our hope, this is our Father's world, all things one. But on the way, there is conflict. There is living conflict, each and every one of us. Sometimes you have to fight. But the question is, and always will be, how? Well, in our text this morning, we catch Moses, the first and great apostle, giving a sermon on the plains of Moab to the second generation of Israelites on the eve of their arrival of the promised land. And he gives them non-conventional instructions for the engagement of conflict. Let's open up our Bibles and look at those instructions and see what they have to say to us as well for our conflicts. That's Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. You'll find that in your pew Bible on on page 154. And uh, if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots, an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Before you engage in battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the troops and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel. Today you are drawing near to do battle against your enemies. Do not lose heart or be afraid or panic or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. Then the officials shall address the troops, saying, Has anyone built a new house but not dedicated it? He should go back to his house. Or he might die in the battle in another dedicated. Has anyone planted a vineyard but not yet enjoyed its fruit? He should go back to his house. Or he might die in the battle and another be first to enjoy its fruit. Has anyone become engaged to a woman but not yet married her? He should go back to his house. Or he might die in the battle and another marry her. The officials shall continue to address the troops, saying, Is anyone afraid or disheartened? He should go back to his house, or he might cause the heart of his comrades to melt like his own. When the officials had finished addressing the troops, then the commanders shall take charge of them. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Well, I I might have hoped that you would have forgotten, but a couple of weeks ago, I promised during this series to take on the tough question of the conquest of Canaan and all the killing that we see in parts of the Old Testament. I was kind of hoping you'd forget and that I'd be able to duck this one, but I have a feeling some of you have remembered. And it's important that we don't overlook this, because for one thing, this is the history of our tradition. It's history. For another thing, this is part of God's revelation. It's scripture. The Apostle Paul says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And then thirdly, 
There is something about the character of God that we would miss if we averted our eyes just at this moment. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Do we not confess that? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. God is love. And so it is so troubling to us when we come to a passage like this where here God is giving instructions for war. Now, we ought not to be surprised, as you recall, Moses is working here apparently with the Ten Commandments. And in chapters 19 through 21, he's dealing with the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not murder, and the implications thereof. But more than just giving instructions for battle, more than just acknowledging the inevitable realism that we will fight, he actually sends his people into battle. If we read further down into verse 17, we'll see where Moses says, you shall annihilate the Canaanites. What do you do with that? The Prince of Peace, the God of love. Well, I got to say, I wrote about a half a dozen sermons this week and I threw them all away. And I'm not going to give one of them to you. Um, I had, I had sermons that would try to make this somehow palatable to you. I, sermons that uh, would talk to you about the, the nature of revelation that's progressive. We don't see the fullness of God in these early days. Sermons about how Israel represents the kingdom of God in very temporal, material, physical ways, not spiritual the way it's represented to us today. Uh, sermons about how what happened at that time was a specific intrusion into time-space history of heaven and hell to demonstrate the reality of those, uh, those eternal uh, truths. I had sermons about how there's a difference in ethics, the cultic laws and the civil laws of the old covenant versus the new covenant. Sermons for you about historical background where you would learn that military hyperbole, such as the phrase annihilate everything, uh, was common in that day and unquestionably is used in uh, the book of uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua, where if you take the text seriously, you can see that not everything was utterly destroyed. Or uh, sermons about how there seem to be um, uh, historical evidences that, that the Israelites did not actually destroy very many cities. And, and in fact, God promises to drive out the Canaanites as though there was some kind of an immigration pattern that would run ahead of the Israelites as they come in. And in fact, they didn't occupy many of these cities. They stayed close for the first 19 chapters, I believe, of Joshua to the River Jordan, right, where they had come in in a town called Gilgal. There they camped. I had sermons uh, about all of these things that, that would take issue, for example, with Richard Dawkins' accusation that this is nothing uh, less than ethnic cleansing, which I would try to explain to you that that's uh, silliness because the tradition itself recalls that there were Canaanites who uh, were protected by the Israelites like Rahab and her clan. And there were Israelites who uh, were punished in the midst of this, like Achan, who did not choose to engage in this battle by faith. But I began to get dissatisfied with all of these approaches because every single one of them sort of made me feel like I was trying to be the clever attorney to get God out of the box. You know, as though God needed my defense somehow. Uh, and I thought, you know, I don't really want to preach a sermon that after the fact you could, you could call it uh, God in the hands of angry sinners. Right? No, God doesn't need that. And more importantly, you and I need more than that. We need to know that there are times when we come to the Bible and we come across something that we just can't make sense of, that we just don't understand. And if we are going to live our lives in the presence of a living God, 
then that is going to have to be more often the case than not. Yes, we can build our, our God paradigm boxes and we can try to cram everything we know about God within that box. But if you want to live with a living God, you've got to invite him sometimes to come into that box and expand it and break it into pieces. And just to sit like Job does with the question. And I have to acknowledge in humility, well, I guess I wasn't there when you laid the foundations of the earth. To let God be God and to live in the mystery. I think if we explain this all the way, I think if you could answer all of my questions about these sorts of texts, I, I might feel a little bit better about what happened back then, but I don't know that I would feel any better at all about my conflicts today. I don't know that that would help me one bit with the relationships uh, that are conflicted in my life today. What I need is not to know what happened then, but need to know who God is today. The living God today. So what I would like to do in my remaining few minutes is to address the question of who is this God with whom we are sitting? Who is the living God? And if we could answer that question, we might know what it means to live with this God in the midst of our conflicts. And if I were to summarize what we learned from this text in two words in answer to that question, I would say these two words, God fights. God fights. He does. Verse four. This is our theme verse. It is the Lord, your God, who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That's our God. But Moses would also tell in Exodus 15, three, the Lord is a warrior as they come out of slavery in Egypt. What is God fighting? Well, the warrant for this particular conflict in Deuteronomy 20 goes all the way back to the promise that God first made with Abram. Becomes Abraham, the father of our faith. Genesis chapter 15. God makes a covenant. There's a rich ritual there. It symbolizes so much. And God says, I am going to give you this land. Abram, the land's underneath your feet, but I can't give it to you right now. No, because it is occupied by another people, the Amorites, the Canaanites. And uh, I love those people, and I want to make sure that they have time to repent and to receive my grace. So you'll just have to wait. How long do they wait? God sends the descendants of Abraham into, into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. That's how far the grace and patience of God runs. But after 400 years, the violence and the dissipation and the rebellion of the Amorites who did not repent would have grown to the point of dissolution. And at that point, God would act in justice. God didn't give the land of Canaan to the Israelites because they needed a land. God didn't release the wealth of Egypt into the hands of the Israelites out of the Exodus because they needed wealth. These are acts of judicial uh, remedy. God fighting evil. By nature, God hates evil. And, and, And evil is present in our lives and all around our lives. It is evil that weighs us down. It's evil that saps our energy. It's evil that diverts our lives. It's evil that crushes us. It's evil that will eventually kill you. 
And God says, I hate that. I will not stand aside and just watch that. I love you too much. God fights. This is what the Bible means when it speaks of the wrath of God. And I know we're very uncomfortable with that phrase, the wrath of God. But let's just sit with it for a moment and to see if there might be something that we're learning. See, we can never grasp the magnitude, the depth of God's love without also understanding something of his wrath. We'll never get it. If we're uncomfortable with the wrath of God, it's not because we're more committed to love. It's because our notions of love are so weak and insipid that we just don't understand love. See, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. I don't care. Sitting back, shrugging the shoulders. Those words are not in God's vocabulary. I don't care. God cares very much. And when he sees you and me going under, pulled in by evil to destruction, he gets angry and he fights. God loves you too much not to. Now, I realize that the, the wrath of God is a subject that many of us can't even tolerate hearing because we grew up with a picture of God, lowercase g, that was just always angry. The wrath of God and the love of God got separated somehow for us. We couldn't hear the gospel of God's wrath. We just knew that God is just always mad at us. And, and, and I, that breaks my heart. And it's the reality for so many of us. The same token, there are many of us who grew up with a God, lowercase g, that was just pure sentimentality. Again, the wrath of God and the love of God were separated, and we had a picture of God who just would never dare to hold anybody accountable to make a demand of anybody or even to intervene for sensitivity. And he just sits there in the cosmos and thinks warm thoughts towards everything and everybody. No. God sees us in danger. He sees my bitterness that begins to eat away at my relationships. He sees our pornography that saps our capacity to truly love. He sees our addictions to alcohol and drugs that destroys our freedom in life. He sees our materialism that wraps everything around our self-centeredness. And God says, no, no, I have so much more, so much more. I have true peace and life and joy. I sat next to a woman on the airplane uh, not long ago, and I was um, opening up my books, and I had Hebrew open, and she was, I could tell she was looking right, you know, over trying to, so I knew I wasn't going to be able to avoid the conversation, and um, you know what that's like as a Christian on an airplane, and so we got talking about Jesus, and uh, she said, oh, I just have great respect for Jesus, just a wonderful guy. And by the way, I've never found anybody who doesn't have anything but respect and admiration for Jesus, but she says, the cross business, you know, that's just not for me, too much negativity. And I said, wait, 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 just wait a second. Um, and I tried to explain to her that there wouldn't be anything more negative than the fact that there actually was a God who would sit back and just watch evil devolve and destroy creation. And by the same token, I can't think of anything more beautiful than this claim that there is a God who steps into the sinful nature of humanity to turn all evil against himself and to absorb it. And so deliver the creation and everybody with faith in Jesus Christ from evil. That is 
the wrath of an angry God in the service of his love. It is the Lord your God who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. So what does the wrath of God mean for our conflicts, the ones we have today? What does it mean for us? What's your conflict? I, mean, I realize that when I ask this question, even the question begins to uh, incite a little fear and trepidation. Because I realize that there are many of us who feel that the doctrine of divine vengeance would give license to our violence. We're afraid of that. So we don't want to go there. But I, I think just exactly the opposite is true. And my authority on that is Miroslav Volf. And he's an authority not just because he's a theologian at Yale University, but because he grew up in the cycles of violent revenge in Serbo-Croatia. And he has watched brutality up close. And Miroslav Volf has made the observation that those uh, parts of the Christian tradition that have been most opposed to violence and most engaged with peace are those who do not hesitate, he says, to speak about God's wrath and judgment. His idea is that far from being a warrant for human violence, the doctrine of divine vengeance actually undermines human violence and puts it to an end. Wolf says, quote, the certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. I can give up violence because I know God is going to take care of it. There is a just judge who will make things right. I just delegate it away. That's what Apostle Paul says. Make room for the vengeance of God. Romans 12, but you be at peace as much as it is in your power with all people. So what does the wrath of God mean for our conflicts? Well, two things. First, God's fight means that we may have to fight. Yes, you may have to fight. You know, God's wrath is not the same as our moral outrage, which is often self-serving and vindictive. But there is something in us as those made in the image of God that when we see evil calls us into action, and rightly so, rightly so. When we see AIDS in Ethiopia, when we see tyranny and violence in Syria, there's something within us that says, I've got to somehow engage. I've got to join this fight. We've been reading in the newspapers the sad story of Penn State this week, and I you know, I don't, who knows, not to throw stones, because who knows what any of us would have done in, in relationship to that crisis. But you would just pray that there could have been somebody close enough to it at some point in time that could have seen the danger. And that could have said, you know, um, everything is expendable if I could protect one 10-year-old child. My career, my reputation, my program, maybe even my personal safety. Do you tell me you wouldn't rush in? You wouldn't pray that you would have the courage to rush in and stop and protect that child? No. First, God's fight means that we may have to fight. Second, though, God's fight means we have a totally different way of fighting. Totally different means of conflict. Did you notice how unconventional these instructions were? Just very quickly, I mean, there are four things that are just absolutely irrational. 
The first thing is that these are not soldiers. These are non-combatants. An unfortunate translation here in our text renders people as troops. There's no military language in here. They're not troops. The Hebrew word is people. Verse 2, for example. Speak to the people. These are just people. They're regular people like you and me. Israel was forbidden to have a standing army because they're called to be a people of peace. And so the people here are, are called into this is non-conventional. The second non-conventional tactic is priestly motivation. You and I have seen all the movies and we expect that there would be a general who would get up in front, you know, or, uh, or Mel Gibson. And, and he would call everybody to heroism with visions of blood and glory. Come on, you know, but that's not the way it goes. No, we bring out the mild-mannered, half-bent priest, and he comes, and what does he do? He preaches good news. He proclaims the gospel. That's our motivation, the joy of being loved by a God, the fact that we are secure. That's the motivation for a different way of fighting. The third thing is a, a, a peaceful priority. I love the way the troops are thinned out. You know, does anybody have a house that they've just built? They haven't taken a residency yet. Does anybody have a vineyard they planted, but you know they haven't yet uh, enjoyed the fruit? Is anybody engaged, but you haven't got married yet? You got to just go home because there's nothing really very important happening here. But that's life. That's what it's all about. Do not let the fight become more important than the relationship. Do not let the battle become more interesting and engaging than the life itself. See, God always puts peace ahead of conflict. Non-combatants, priestly motivation, a, a, a peaceful priority. And the fourth thing is that faith is a strategy. You know, when you read the Bible, you read these stories, there's always too many soldiers. There's just too many of you, like Gideon. We've got to get some of you to go, get out of here. And, and if anybody's afraid, we really don't need your help here because faith is the strategy. We're going to win this battle, not with our swords, but with our faith. That's why I love God sends the Israelites to Gideon with a brass, on, a brass ensemble, right? It's a little jazz thing. You know, you blow the trumpets and what? Yeah, that's because I want you to know that I'm the one who fights for you. And I want you to be a peaceful uh, people who just win by faith. Faith in me. Faith in my wrath, my justice, faith in my love, my grace. This all points us to the foolishness of the cross. To a people who, like little boy David against the great giant Goliath, who would stand and say, nobody taunts the armies of the living God. And in his faith, he knows that power is perfected in weakness. And that's what the cross is all about. The power, the perfect power of God in the crucified Messiah. No one in the first century ex expected the Messiah to show up and hang on a Roman cross. The hope... The expectation would be that the Messiah would come and would be able to match the brutality of the Roman industrial military complex. That he would come and burn the infidels away. And here comes Jesus, a crucified Messiah. And don't be deceived. The power of Jesus Christ far exceeds the power and capacity of Rome or any power and principality that would stand against God's peace. This is the climax of God's fight against evil, the cross. And it is the means of our conflict as well. God fights through the cross. We fight through the cross as well. Came across um, 
the final words of Sir Thomas More, advisor to Henry VIII. That was a dangerous job. He was betrayed by the king, obviously, at the end of his life and was sentenced to death. The judges had a rather vivid depiction of his penalty. And I can't, I can't read the whole thing to you, literally, but I'll give you some sense of it. They say, Sir Thomas More, you are to be drawn on a hurdle through the city of London to Tyburn. There to be hanged till you be half dead. After that, cut down yet alive. Your body to be divided into four parts and your head and body to be set at such places as the king shall assign. And I've got to believe it was through the cross that Sir Thomas More made his final reply. He says, More have I not to say, my lords, but as the blessed apostle St. Paul was present and consented to the death of St. Stephen and kept their clothes that stoned him to death, and yet they now both, Paul and Stephen, sing holy sanctity in heaven and shall continue there, friends, forever. So I verily trust and shall therefore hardly pray that though your lordships have now here in the earth been my judges to my condemnation, we may yet hereafter in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting joy and thus I desire Almighty God to preserve and defend the king's majesty and to send him good counsel. That is the way I want to engage conflict. What conflicts do you face today? What are yours? God is never going to ask you to be an instrument of divine justice that has been finished on the cross. And I, I doubt that you are in conflict with any oppressive Egyptians or any child-sacrificing Canaanites. But every single day, you and I face conflict. And you're in one or many right now. We have conflicts with our roommates. We have conflicts with our ex-spouses, with our employers, with our partners, with our landlords. We have conflicts with systems and cultures and institutions. We have conflicts with disease. What's yours? And in all of this, our question needs to be so simple as this. What does the cross ask of me? That's what I want you to take home. What does the cross ask of me in this conflict? And I hate to disappoint you, but there's no easy answer to that. Each and every one of us will find a new answer in the face of each individual conflict. Tomorrow, one of us will go and give up a lawsuit. We'll say, I know that that person is wrong. I know that I could win this case, that I am in the right. But I'm going to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to see there a depiction of my ego crucified and let it go. I'm going to see there the love of God for someone who does not deserve love as I don't and let it go. Tomorrow, there will be somebody else who will file a lawsuit because they will look at the cross and they will know that if I do not file a lawsuit, that we will not have the documentation we need to stop this horrid injustice that continues to be perpetuated. And I realize that if I file a lawsuit, there'll be great, tremendous loss of time and money and reputation on my part. But I look at the cross and I there see my security. My security. 
and all the courage that I need to push forward boldly. There'll be someone tomorrow morning who will say, they will look at the cross and they will say, I will fight literally the hell out of my cancer to the bitter end. There'll be somebody else tomorrow morning who will look at the cross and who will say, I now know I have peace to resign the battle. Do you see? What does the cross say to you in the midst of your conflict? The core message of the cross is that hope comes from beyond us, from the living God who's pledged his life to fight for us and for the peace of the world. It is the Lord your God who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. Let's pray. God, help us to sit with that which we don't understand. Help us to sit and know that you are so unconventional. You're so different. Your ways are so much higher than our ways. Forgive us for the times that we we refuse to look into your glory and be changed by it. But now commission us to be agents of reconciliation to engage the battle of the kingdom of God and to engage it in your way as only we can do as empowered by your Holy Spirit who goes with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.